Now, you probably at some point uh, considered just how important starting is. Starting points are very important. If you're a sprinter, you don't start well, you don't finish well, because how you start probably has a lot to do with where you're going to finish. You ever been on a first date? If you forgot your manners or you never learned them, you discovered there wasn't a second date, right? So you, 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 got, you want to do well on that first date? I saw some of you taking notes. There you go, right there. Um, like that first week on the job, really important as you're establishing those relationships. The first time you meet a new client, uh, the first week of school, how important is that? Your first impression, you know that you can never get it back, so you'd like to make a decent one, right? You see, starting is so significant. And that is especially true when it comes to as you get started in your relationship with God when you really believe in Jesus Christ. Last week, as we began this series, we saw from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, his final words as he concluded that great sermon, that the purpose of life is to grow mature in Christ. Do you remember what he said? Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. He's saying, listen, I've got all authority. You need to build your life on me. That is the purpose of life. And you hear his words. You understand them. You comprehend them. But you also have to act on them. And just like you build a house, it's a process. You are building your life on me. I have given you life in my name. I am giving you strength and I am giving you words of wisdom and you apply those words to your life in my strength. That is the purpose of life to grow mature in Christ. Now, how does Jesus want his disciples to actually begin identifying with him? I mean, once you have believed in Christ, Savior from sin, Lord of my life, sovereign Son of God, how do you start building? The answer to that critical question is found in Matthew chapter 28, the final verses. It is known as the Great Commission. So let's take a look at it. Verse 18, chapter 28. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He's saying, The right to use power, all authority has been given to me. The time of my humiliation has passed. Now is the time of the exaltation, the glorification. The I am the exalted one above all. And he says, all authority has been given to me and in heaven and on earth. And this is what I want you to do. When you look at the Gospel of Matthew, really it is a treatise to the authority of Jesus Christ. I mean, you see that Jesus has the authority over disease and sickness, over demons, over sin, over death. He actually can forgive sins because he knows that he's going to go to the cross and pay for sins. And actually, apart from the forgiveness of sins, he can actually delegate his authority to certain individuals to actually do works like he did. He has the authority to lay his life down. He has the authority to take his life up again. And he says, this is what I want you to do. Verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. 
What he says is, I want you to make disciples. And that is the verb that is the imperative verb. I want you to make disciples. And it's really qualified by three different participles. It should be translated, as you are going, I want you to make disciples. I want you to be baptizing them. And I want you to be teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And I am with you always. I want you to go to the nations. My authority knows no limits, nor does my commission. I am commissioning you to go to every part of the world. And I want you to make disciples. And do you notice, how does it begin? What does it look like to make disciples? Once you've come to a place where you are believing in Christ. And that word disciple could be even translated like an apprentice. A disciple isn't just someone that goes to church or someone who's converted to Christianity. It is one who is attached to Jesus as Lord and Master. Just like if you were an apprentice under someone, you were going to learn from them, you actually become like them. And that's what it means to be a disciple of Christ. You've got salvation in his name. He has given you forgiveness of sins. He's given you his spirit in your life. And he has training you so that you grow fully mature in him. You become like him. And how does this process, once you believe, how does it begin? What does the text say? I want you to be baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. What does it mean, this word, baptize? There are two Greek words in the New Testament for, to regard to baptism. One is bapto. It's used four different times. It has the idea to dip, uh, to immerse. It could be used of like dyeing. You take some cloth, you dip it into the dye. The cloth comes out whatever color the dye is. But the word that is most commonly used is baptizo. It's used about 63 times in the Greek New Testament. And it has the idea of fully immerse, fully submerged. Both could be translated immerse, submerged. But baptizo was even used like if someone were to drown. It is complete immersion, to dip completely. And you can see this even when they translated the Bible into Latin. They used the words immersio and submersio. And that's how you see it used. So bapto, baptizo, the noun form baptismas, uh, it has the idea of immersion. And frankly, if when they were translating the Bible, instead of transliterating the word baptizo, they actually wrote immersion, what it means, a lot of the confusion on baptism would have gone away. And it has the idea that you are completely identified with that which you're immersed in. Okay, And they believed it was such a technical term, that's why they actually went with baptism. It's, it's a unique form of immersion. And the New Testament sometimes actually uses baptism, not to speak of a water submersion, but that you are identified completely with Christ. So you see this. For instance, this is what it means to be a Christian. Like in Galatians 3.27, all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Okay, so you are immersed in Christ. You were clothed with his character. Colossians 2.12, having been buried with him in baptism, you were raised up. You are identifying with his death. You have been raised up in the newness of life. And perhaps the most famous, like in Romans 6, 3, it says this. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? He is speaking of a spiritual immersion. You're identifying completely with Christ. They're not referring to water baptism. 
So every time, though, that you see the word bapto or baptizo in the New Testament, baptism, it speaks of an immersion or to submerse. It always permits or requires that understanding. The Greeks actually had a word for sprinkle, okay? It is rantismos. So, for instance, like in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, it's, Peter writes that we are to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. Different word. But bapto, baptizo, baptism, it was used to speak of immersion. Oftentimes, it's used of a water immersion. It is to picture an object lesson. It is to serve as a symbol, a visual analogy of what has taken place now that we believe in Christ. And so, to give you just a definition of baptism, it's this. It is a ceremony by which a person is immersed or submerged into water to identify that they are vitally united with the crucified and resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. And so when they're referring to baptism as an act, when people are being baptized, that's what it means. Water baptism does not provide salvation. It pictures it. And really, it pictures that you are dead to sin and you are now being raised up, and you are walking in the newness of life. It doesn't save you, baptism, but it reveals that you are believing in Christ. Now, openly identifying with Christ is so important. That's why Jesus says, this is what I want you to do. Because it sets you on a trajectory for maturity. It settles the issue in a sense that you're not going to be the incognito Christian. You know, the secret disciple. no. You are willing to publicly identify with Christ. This inward reality of trusting Christ, I'm willing to go public with it. I am a follower of Jesus. And notice what the text says. We are to baptize them in the name, singular, you see that in verse 19, of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The name speaks of someone's like character or what that person stands for. And we are baptized in the name singular, but you see the triunity of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And even though the word Trinity does not occur in the Bible, God is three persons in one, occurs in multiple places, and you see it very clearly here. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that is who God is. So, what, how is baptism, now that we've got some clarity as to what it means, how has it been practiced over the years? Where did it even originate? I'd like to give you just a brief overview on the subject. This is not meant to be exhaustive, but I'd like to give you a little history. So where did it come from? Where did it start? It actually begins in the Old Testament with the Jews. And the people of Israel, they had the God's law, promises, prophets. They had the covenants. And a Gentile, someone who is not Jewish from descent, they weren't necessarily a believer in Yahweh, but they wanted to follow God, the God of Israel, the one true God. They wanted to become Jewish. They couldn't obviously become racially Jewish, but they wanted to do so religiously or spiritually. They took part in something called a proselyte induction. What that means is that they were going to identify with the people of God. And the Jews developed a ceremony, a, a system for which that was done. It had three parts. Circumcision for the males, it had baptism, and it had an animal sacrifice. And so what this looked like, if you were a Gentile, a non-Jewish person, but you said, I want to, I'm a, I've become a believer in, in 
Yahweh, the one true God. I want to identify with the people of Israel, God's covenant people. You went into this proselyte induction. First of all, you, if you were a male, you were circumcised. Didn't matter how old you were, that's the rite that took place. Second of all, though, there was a baptism. And it literally represented that you were dead to your old self. You were immersed, submerged, and it meant that you were dead to the old way of thinking, dead to sin, dead to your old traditions, your old customs, your old habits, and especially dead to your idolatry and your iniquity. And then you were raised up to identify with God, Yahweh, and the covenant people of God, Israel. And then the final aspect of that ceremony was a sacrificial sacrificial animal. An animal died in your place because you couldn't pay for your sin. I think that's fascinating because at the heart of this this process where a Gentile became a believer and a Jewish and identified with the Jewish faith, there was this symbol of substitutionary death depicting the ultimate Lamb of God who would come and die in the place of sinners. It's looking forward to the Messiah. And so you see proselyte Gentile immersion, that's where baptism first begins when you look at kind of redemptive history. So let's skip ahead now to a guy by the name of John the Baptist. He is the forerunner of the Messiah. He is the prophet. And he is announcing, like you see at Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He is calling people to turn from wickedness and from sin and to place your faith in God and to be ready for his kingdom because Messiah is coming. Now, the Jewish people didn't know quite what to do with him because he called all these Gentiles to repent and get ready for the Messiah. But he also, and this is what was remarkable and staggering, he was calling the Jewish people to repent and to be ready for the Messiah and the kingdom. And this is where he crossed the line. You see, the Jewish people thought, well, hey, we're born into this. We got the covenants. We can trace our lineage back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're fine. And John the Baptist said, it's not about lineage. It's all about whether you really believe. You have a heart that trusts and loves God. And if you don't, you need to repent. And what he was doing, oftentimes along the, the Jordan River, is he was baptizing individuals. They were, when they were baptized, submerged into the river, they were identifying with John's message of repentance for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the Jewish elite didn't know exactly what to do with him because he was calling Jews to do that. And then on a very special day, you find this recorded like in Matthew chapter 3, Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, actually comes to John to be baptized. You can read it. Let me just read an excerpt. This is what took place. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him at the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time. For in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. That's why Jesus came, to fulfill every bit of the law. Then he permitted him. And so, wait a second here. Why is Jesus being baptized? Is Jesus a sinner needing to repent of his sin? Is that true? No, he's perfect. He's sinless. He's without sin. So why is he being baptized? Because he is identifying with John's message 
of repentance for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Messiah is coming and Jesus is declared he is it. For when Jesus comes up out of the water, you remember, the father declares, this is my beloved son. The spirit of God in the form of a dove actually lands on his shoulder. And so think of it. You got the father in heaven saying, this is my son. You got the son of God standing up out of the water and you have the spirit of God. You have the triunity of God right there fully represented. This is the beginning of his ministry. And so after his death, he is risen from the grave. And then you've got this commission. I want you to go, therefore, I want you to make disciples of all the nations. I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And for the first two centuries, roughly, that was the norm. You believed in Christ, that he is the one who paid for your sins, provides forgiveness, gives you new life, and you were baptized. You were immersed. You were submerged in water. It was a public declaration. But what happened toward the end of the second century, though, you start to see more and more occurrences of infant baptism. And the situation is this. There is a high infant mortality rate. And believing parents, they want to be certain that their children, if they should die, are going to be with them in the kingdom of heaven. They want to be with them personally. They want them to be with God. And yet they're dying and they're like, what's going to happen? They, They couldn't believe. And so the idea, let's let's start baptizing them as infants, occurs. And with the rise of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, which happens in the third century, with its emergence, baptizing children, infants, becomes the norm. And by the way, Catholic means universal. I know it's kind of taken on a meaning of its own, but it spoke of like the universal church. And so the Roman Catholic Church, still even to this day, teaches that infant baptism provides regeneration. It is a ritual of regeneration, and it officially teaches this, that an infant is cleansed from original sin and receives salvation once they are baptized. Some water is run over their head. In fact, in the Roman Catholic system, it is the first of seven sacraments in which they believe it's a visible rite, and it's a ritual that God actually provides a channel of grace, efficacious, effective grace for those who partake in this ritual. And it gets started when they are infants. And so that has been the practice. It's interesting. uh, There was a concern. What happens if a baby should die and they haven't been christened? What happens to those babies? And so the Catholic Church created what is called the Limbo of the Infants. And they state this. They teach that, well, that baby, they never go to heaven, but they don't go to hell. They just kind of hang out in the limbo of the infants. The soul enjoys a natural bliss, and yet they are forever deprived of a vision of God. And so they never actually do go to God's presence, but they are kind of in this position of bliss. It's called the limbo of the infants. By the way, this is actually not official Catholic Church doctrine, but this is what they teach. And by the way... That is completely not in the Bible. And so very early on, you've got all these babies that are being baptized. They're being baptized into the Catholic Church. They are assumed to be Christians. And what happens is you have a very secure system. You're basically making everybody a Christian at birth. 
Whether or not they believe at any point in their life, they belong to the church, they are under its control. And with the high infant mortality rates, you've got the clergy who are actually literate and they can read. You've got most of the folks that are peasants that can't read, they're illiterate, and they say, this is what you should do, this is what what's, uh, we're recommending and we're teaching. And so you've got all of these people that are being baptized, that are part of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, it shouldn't surprise you that this is the system that is practiced. Because Catholics have two forms of authority. On one hand, they have the Bible. But on the other, they have tradition, their tradition. It's called the magisterium. And how this works is they believe that any revelation that God has given, extra-biblical revelation, they are the only ones that can receive it, and furthermore, they're the only ones that can interpret it. And they collect this in their magisterium, their, their tradition. And so they have all these traditions. They're hold, held on equal par with the Bible. And furthermore, they say, we are the only ones that can actually accurately interpret the Bible and tradition. It is an airtight system. And so you have people at the very beginning with being baptized. Of course, they're not aware of what's going on. And they're automatically brought into the church. And they're assumed to be Christians. Now, this continues, and this is the norm for thousands of years. And then you have what is referred to as the Protestant Reformation that begins to take place. And oftentimes, the Reformation is uh, directly tied, in a lot of people's thinking, with a guy by the name of Martin Luther. Martin Luther is a Catholic Roman, a Catholic scholar. He is brilliant. He perhaps is one of the finest scholars that they have, and he is located in Wittenberg, Germany. And he is, as he's starting to read the Bible, he is coming to an understanding that a person is not made a Christian by virtue of baptizing them physically, but by believing in Christ by faith, that you've got to have faith in Christ. And he's concerned by a lot of these doctrines, part of the traditions of the church, that he thinks are really leading people astray. One of those things that he really is concerned about is this idea that you can sell indulgences. You can sell a piece of paper to someone that will somehow release people from this intermediate state of punishment and purification that the Catholics created called purgatory. And that they have to be kind of refined and go through all this punishment before they can know the joy of heaven. But none of that is in the Bible. And he's starting to read the Bible. He's like... It's not there. So in those days, if you wanted to have a formal debate on subjects like this, this is what you did. You nailed your issues to the church door. And so he nails 95 theses to the, to the church door at Wittenberg, Germany. And he says, I want to discuss this. I want to discuss this and look at what the Bible says because this is not in there. And by the way, this is how the Catholic Church funded all the development of these massive, beautiful cathedrals. Because you have all these peasants wanting to release either themselves in the future or loved ones. They either said, hey, they're, they're burning and they're suffering in purgatory. Don't you want them out? Yeah. Here you go. Buy this. You're saying that is wrong. In fact, Luther, he would come out and say this, quote, The church needs to rid itself of all false glories that torture scripture by inserting personal ideas into the scripture, which lend to it their own sense. No. Scripture, 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 for me, constrain, press, compel me with God's Word. 
So this is Martin Luther. Don't think that he's some sort of stumbling, bumbling, local monk, doesn't really know what he's doing. This guy is very intelligent and very sharp, and he really doesn't want to break away from the Catholic Church. He wants to fix it. He wants to reform it. He is protesting. He is considered a Protestant. And it is sola scriptura. Scripture, scripture, scripture. But Luther, as he is really wrestling with these issues and what it really means to believe, you have to understand something. There is only so much one person can do in a lifetime. Why do people think that one guy just figured it all out? And, and so whatever he believed and wherever he landed, by the time he's dead, we're just going to say he's got it all figured out. I want to tell you that the Reformation wasn't complete with one man. And Luther never moved away from infant baptism. He was very busy in trying to figure out what faith in Christ really means. And so not too long from 1517, when he nailed those theses to the door, in 1526, he writes the small baptismal book. And in this, he he actually gives, this is the ceremony of what we will do when it comes to the subject of baptism, specifically baptizing babies. Let me just read it to you. This is some excerpts. So you bring your baby, the parents bring their baby to the church, and this is the prayer. O Lord Almighty, I invoke thee concerning this child, thy servant, who asks for the gift of thy baptism and desires thy grace through the spiritual new birth. And then it goes on to say at the end, in Luther's ceremony, the infant is asked, Dost thou renounce the devil and all his works and nature? And the parents answer, yes. Why do the parents answer? Because infants don't understand what is being said. Then it goes on, Dost thou believe in God the Father, in Jesus Christ, his Son, in the Holy Spirit, and one Christian church? Do you believe? These are asked of the infant. The parent says, yes. The child is then baptized, and then this is the concluding prayer. The Almighty God hath begotten thee anew through water and the Holy Spirit, and has forgiven thee all thy sins. Amen. What is that? That is baptismal regeneration. Now, infant baptism is still practiced by Lutherans today. So let's, there's a variety of branches of Lutherans. Let's go with the most conservative uh, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. If you go to their website, you can find this when they talk about doctrines under baptism. This is what they believe. Quote, baptism is God's act a divine testimony to what grace alone really means whereby he imparts the blessing of forgiveness, life, and salvation to individuals, children, and adults alike. Okay? And so that's what Lutherans do. They baptize babies because they believe it's an indicator that God saves by grace. And then this is then confirmed when they are older. Years ago, when I was looking for absolute clarity as to what Lutherans believe about baptism, I entered into a series of email dialogues with uh, Doc, Reverend Dr. Paul J. Grimes. Uh, he is the, he, at the time, he was the executive director of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, Commission on Worship. He is currently the dean of spiritual formation at Concordia Theological Seminary. And so in our series of, of emails, and he knew I was a pastor, and I'm trying to figure this out, uh, I asked this question. Is an infant who has been baptized in a Lutheran church then a quote-unquote Christian and saved from their sins, original and otherwise. And this was his response. Quote, 
An infant who is baptized is joined to Christ in his death and resurrection, Romans 6. He has been clothed with Christ, Galatians 3:27, whose righteousness covers all his sins. So yes, that child is a Christian whose sins are forgiven, no conditions. What is that? That is baptismal regeneration. Now, uh, there are other forms of Protestantism besides Lutheran. There are Reformation-based churches, um, and they will all practice paedo-baptism. Okay? In time, like with the Presbyterians, they varied it a little bit when it came to infant baptism to say that, well, when we're baptizing babies, what's actually happening is they're automatically becoming a little member of God's covenant people. And that this is going to be confirmed in a rite called confirmation at a later date, when a child is old enough to actually say the catechism. So what they do, though, is they say that in the New Testament, baptism replaces circumcision. In the Old Testament, circumcision, which happens, by the way, only to males, it actually was the sign of ethnic identity. It did not make a person right with God. But what they're saying was that was a symbol then of the covenant community, so we're going to say baptism is the New Testament symbol of being in the covenant community of the church. And now, uh, at the heart of the Presbyterian church is a guy by the name of John Calvin, a very intelligent, astute scholar. And he basically comes down on the side of paedo-baptism, baptizing infants. He wrote a significant magnum opus called The Institutes of the Christian Religion. Um, it's an exceptional work, and there's a lot a person can learn from reading it. In his fourth book, chapter 15, section 19, when he is discussing baptism, I want you to listen to what he says. Whether the person baptized is to be wholly immersed, and that whether once or thrice, or whether he's only to be sprinkled poured, or sprinkled with poured water, these details are of no importance, but ought to be optional to the churches according to the diversity of country or climate. But listen to this. Yet the word baptize means to immerse. And it is clear that the rite of immersion was observed in the ancient church. Infant baptism isn't in the scriptures. It's not discussed. I could also tell you that it's true that scripture nowhere forbids infant baptism. Because it's just not there. It's never discussed. So in this Reformation, you've got these Protestant reformers, Luther, Calvin. You have a group of people that are going, man, we now have a relationship with Christ by faith. We get this. But it seems that as we're reading the Bible, that it says that you should be baptized after you believe, not the other way around. And this is very significant because they say, you know what, even though we were baptized as infants, we need to be baptized as now believing adults, now that we understand and believe. And so they are. They are again baptized. Anna is the Greek word for again. Anna Baptist, again baptized. And I want you to know that this created a huge problem. The Catholics despised these Anabaptists, as did all of these Protestant reformers. In fact, at times they even linked up to persecute the Anabaptists. And it is one of the brutal, ugly chapters of church history, which has plenty of it. And they persecuted these people in some of the most horrendous of ways. And what, would, what happened uh, with the Protestant Reformation is that they would actually have kind of like 
churches that started taking over government. You actually have Catholic nations and Protestant nations. And frankly, the Protestant nations really weren't much better than the Catholic ones. And they would put to death these Anabaptists. They were despised. And some of the direct successors of the continental Anabaptists exist today, like the Mennonites and the Amish and the Hooterites. They can actually trace in an unbroken line all the way back to the 6th century, these Anabaptists. So now you've got this situation where you've got some folks saying, no, you've got to be baptized after you believe. By the way, John's Calvin, John Calvin's wife, Idolette, was an Anabaptist, as was her first husband, John Storter, before his death. And we actually have no record that John Calvin's wife actually changed her position on baptism. So today, we have got a widespread belief that babies need to be baptized. Let me give you some other developments. Uh, You've got like the Salvation Army and the Quakers, who like to be referred to as the Friends Church, and ultra-dispensationalists, and they actually deny that baptism has any role whatsoever. They said it's totally not important. On the other hand, on the other extreme, you've got churches of Christ, or disciples of Christ, or Christian churches, and they believe that you absolutely have to be baptized in order to be saved. That you cannot have salvation apart from being baptized. And then outside the Orthodox Christianity, you've got like a massive cult like the Mormons get founded in about 1830. And they are baptizing all of these people, but they're doing it proxy baptism. Literally millions of Mormons are baptized in temples for people that are already dead. It is proxy baptism. It's based on an erroneous interpretation of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 29. And if you want to know, like, why do the Mormons have such awesome genealogical records? That is the why. They are trying to trace every single person, and they are doing these proxy, proxy baptisms for them. And so this is the situation. Today, we have millions of unbelievers who are baptized. And we also have millions of believers who are not baptized. So what are we to do? Let's go to the source. Let's go to the authority, the Word of God. And I just want to show you the emphasis of the New Testament. We don't have to guess what it looked like in the early church. We actually have a record. It is the book of Acts. And I'm rather, just in an expeditious way, I just want to show you how the Great Commission was practiced. So Acts chapter 2, verse 14 and following, you have Peter at Pentecost 50 days after the resurrection of Christ, and he is proclaiming, that, that Jesus had to die and pay the penalty for sins, and he was resurrected. And he is calling people to believe in Christ. And so all these Jews are at the temple, and they're listening to him. And this is what took place. When they heard the gospel and believed in Christ, it says, Acts chapter 2, verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And there were about 3,000 people that were baptized because they were identifying with the crucified and resurrected Christ. Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 4, you've got Philip, and he's preaching the gospel in Samaria. And listen to what it says, beginning in verse 12. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ... 
they were being baptized, men and women alike. It says nothing about children. It says, and even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. There was an immediate identification with the resurrected Lord demonstrated in baptism. Acts chapter 8, 26 through 40. You got a guy who's gone down in history as the Ethiopian eunuch. He is a court official. Uh, he is going, he's coming back from Jerusalem where he was worshiping, so he's obviously a believer in Yahweh. He's making his way to Ethiopia, and Philip approaches him and explains this to him as he's reading from the book of Isaiah. So Acts chapter 9, verse 17. So Ananias departed, excuse me, Acts chapter 8, uh, verse 36. And they went along the road and they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when he came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but went away on his way rejoicing. That is a clear picture of how it was practiced in the early church. Acts chapter 9, you got a guy by the name of Saul, and he is literally incarcerating these people that are in the way, believing in Jesus as the Messiah. And on his way to Damascus, the Lord Jesus himself confronts him, presents himself to him, and blinds him. He is led away by the hand to Damascus, where he does not eat or drink for three days. And then Jesus sends a guy by the name of Ananias to him. And this is what you find, Acts chapter 9, verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house. After laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized. And he took food and was strengthened. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. I don't know about you, but if I hadn't ate anything or drank anything in three days, that would be the first thing I would do. But that's not the first thing he did. What was the first thing he did? He was baptized. Why? He understood the importance of identifying with the people of God, and that must have been some scene when Paul, who was called Saul at that point, was identifying with Christ and the people of God. Let me give you another. Acts chapter 10. You got a guy by the name of Cornelius. He's a Gentile. He's a non-Jewish Roman centurion. He's packed his house out with his relatives and his, his close friends. And you've got Peter who comes, he preaches the gospel, tells them about Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and then Peter said this, Surely, verse 47, no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Why? They believed in him. Let me give you another. Acts chapter 16 Beginning in verse 30, 30, you've got a situation where Paul and Silas have been in prison. There's an earthquake. They had obviously preached the gospel even though they had been beaten and were in chains. This Philippian jailer, he comes up to him, Acts chapter 16, verse 30. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Listen, they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. 
And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his, his whole household. They believed and what? They were baptized. Let me give you two more. Acts chapter 18, verse 8. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And let me give you one final one. Acts chapter 19. You've got those who were followers of John the Baptist and had actually been baptized by John, but they had never heard of Jesus. Paul comes and tells them, this Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, he is the Messiah. And it says this in verse 5. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is the consistent pattern that you find in the New Testament. Why? Because identifying with Christ brings a willingness to be baptized. So how important of an issue is this? Is this really a big deal? Well, Jesus said, all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. This is what I want you to do. I want you to make disciples. And that process, that relational maturing process, it gets started when they're willing to be baptized. Baptism is an external expression of an internal reality. And I want you to know that over history, it has been costly. I tell you, you come from some places like in India and Muslim-dominated places to identify with Christ and get baptized. Man, you're going to get forsaken by your family. You might lose your job. You might get beat. You might even just lose your life. But identifying with Christ brings a willingness to be baptized. Now, listen, I know there are a variety of opinions on this subject. And over the years, there's been a lot of trees that have fallen over this. But I do believe that Christ had one intended meaning when he said, I want you to be baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to tell you this. I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to study the scriptures and develop your own convictions. But it is a very important subject. This past week, I got together with some pastor friends of mine and at a campfire at night, uh, one of my friends told me about the privilege he had of baptizing his mother who came to Christ later in life. The church was gathered. They were at the Guadalupe River. And he says, you know, I was like, whoa, I'm, I'm baptizing my mom who's now come to faith in Christ. And he says, when my mom came out of the water, she just started crying and weeping like uncontrollably. And 10 minutes later, she's still weeping. And he goes, Mom, are you okay? And she says something to this extent. I cannot believe that Jesus is so gracious as to love us enough as to be united with us. Friends, that's it. It is the joy to know the living Lord. And it's a joy to be identified with him in baptism. And by the way, on May 20th at our church picnic, we kick off the summer. We're going to have a baptism. If you're a believer and you've never placed your faith in never actually been baptized, let me encourage you. Why don't you give this some strong consideration? Why don't you call us at the church office? Let's get connected because this is such a critically important subject. Let's pray. Lord, how awesome it is. You have given us your word. You have called us into life in Christ. And someone who has come here today has never truly believed. Maybe they've been around religion, been to church a lot, but they've never believed. But today, they do. But they just pray with me and say, Lord, I turn from myself and my sin, and I believe in Christ. I believe the gospel. Forgive me and lead me. And Lord, for all of us, help us 
to know you in even deeper and greater ways, to be unashamed of the gospel, to walk in your truth and to understand how important baptism is. So, Lord, we commit our way to you. Do your work through us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.